You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about the 10th Doctor Adventures. Right, thank you. So you don't have to. I'm Simon. And I'm JR. And after what feels like ages since they were announced, but actually it's really not all that long, they're with us. And obviously the reason I've got you, Simon, on this podcast is because you're the big Doctor and Donna fan. Mm, mm. So before we get into what they're like, tell me how much you're anticipating them. Uh, I... Because to be honest, it's big finish. It's not like they're on the telly. No, so no. did that make a difference? Well, in my anticipation, it did. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you, yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't quite figure out what sort of level it was going to come in at. Yeah, if yeah. You see what I mean? I don't mean that disrespectfully to big finish. Just the big finish is is one animal. Well, it's because yeah, and what, and what was on television was another. So you don't quite know, and you don't know how the the actor's going to make the transition. I mean, I was thinking about David Tennant's performance in Day of the Doctor. I mean, it was kind of 80% Tenth Doctor, wasn't it? It wasn't quite there. Yeah, and of course it was written by Stephen Moffat, so it was the Tenth Doctor slightly more like you saw him in Silence in the Library than mm. it was than when you saw him in, say, something like Midnight. Yeah, yeah. And so this was going to be something different again. And of course writers who haven't written for the Tenth Doctor and Donna before, or the Tenth Doctor at all, and... And crucially, who mm. aren't being you know, suggested storylines and then rewritten by Russell T. Davis. No, and also uh, probably have, have thought of this as a dream gig and have probably had lines that they wanted to use <clears throat> for years and have now got the opportunity to use them. So, um, And so, as it yeah. stands, you don't actually know who those three writers are, do you? I don't know. I've, I've probably read as we went along and I probably blanked them out because I was so jealous. <laughs> simple, simple as that. So I, yeah, I, I listened to them, and yeah, didn't didn't take on board. Didn't see who the writer was before I listened. Just Do you know who case. any of the cast are? Uh, I, I kind of I recognise some voices. Yeah, I certainly recognised a couple as being long-standing Big Finish voices. Some real distinctive voices. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. I've got it all written down. Okay, You've not seen cool. it on the piece of paper. No, no. But actually, that's the interesting thing about Big Finish. They're not putting, you know, a usually or oftentimes in the past, Nicholas Briggs has read the title of the story and the writer, and then at the end they've had sort of credits during the end theme. Hmm. We've not had any of that. No, so. no, no. This is it. I listened through to the end to... Um, to catch that, and it wasn't there. So I thought, well, I'll take advantage of that and come to the podcast completely. Okay, then. Mm. <clears throat> and yeah, okay, for me as well, the anticipation for this was odd because, well, as you know, I'm not the biggest Tenth Doctor fan. No, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that we've... Well, we're not We're not negative. No, we're not negative towards it. We're, 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 hey, put we're it this way. Yeah. Out of all the... Twelve Doctors we've had so far, there's not a single one I don't like. No, no. It's just 
the degrees of how much you like them. Mm. And mm. so the Tenth Doctor is one of the ones I'm more ambivalent about. Mm. But having said that, I've always thought David Tennant was absolutely the right guy for the right time. Mm. And now to see him come back on audio, which of course is where he started with Doctor Who, mm. having done a couple of big finishes beforehand. And of course he was in Scream of the Shell Girl, only a very tiny part. <laughs> so coming back to Big Finish, it was one of the things I was looking forward to finding out was, is he going to give his TV performance or is he going to give a Big Finish performance? And I tell you what, let's talk about Tennant and Tate at the end. Okay, all right. Let's get it. So how, how spoilerific can we be on this? <clears throat> Well, I'll tell you what, most of we the people... We should try not to be, shouldn't we? Because... Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. let's not spoil any story beats or anything like that. No, okay. And let's not do what certain reviews have done and spoil any of the jokes either, perhaps. Oh, what? why have they done that? What? Okay. Yeah, let's not get into that. But yeah, it's certainly not something I would do. And there's always going to be jokes, wasn't there? But yeah, absolutely. You don't review a comedy show and say the jokes, do you? I think there are certain things that we can mention. Mm. There's no... Uh, <clears throat> there are a couple of things that they repeat almost verbatim from the TV version. Mm, mm. I think that's fair ground. Anything mm. new, I think not. Yeah, yeah. Insofar as what we talk about then. So, <clears throat> <laughs> I know, it's <laughs> like where first. to start. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about some of the technical stuff first. Mm-hmm. The fact that they've used the Murray Gold Series 4 theme. Yeah. Or was it actually the theme, or was it just a slight remix of it? No, no, I think it was the theme. Yeah, I I, it sounds slightly different, but that's because I'm not sure if it's the it's very it was very it's the very tribal version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With which the I think is right for that era. Yes, which came in at Voyage of the Damned. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't obviously through headphones as opposed to out of a television set it sounds ever so slightly different mm, mm. and I couldn't be certain whether that was because it was a slight remix or whether it's just because I'm not used to hearing it through mm, headphones mm. but I figured it was the same one well, anybody who's been waiting for this yeah that's the shiver down the spine moment really it, isn't it? it is and they did do the um, the, the uh, what do they call it cold open yeah the taster is that what they call it in the script I'm trying to think what they call it the bit that comes before them? Yes. Cold open. Cold open, okay. Or uh, pre-title sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cold open is the So, yeah, word. bottom line is the format is the same as a TV TV series. <clears throat> well, one interesting thing was the length, but we'll talk to that mm. when we get to this, talking about the stories. Mm. Incidental music by Howard Carter. Yeah. What did you think of that? I thought it captured Murray Gold pretty darn well. I thought it was somewhere between Murray Gold and... Because the thing about Murray Gold is, regardless of the It sounds like The Incredibles, can I just say? (laughs) Did you think so? Yeah. I thought he did a good job of not attempting to do Murray Gold. Yeah. But doing a slightly more Murray Gold version of the normal Big Finish thing. Mm -hmm. What's quite nice is at the end of the episode, I don't know if if that's how it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Is um, the, the fact that you've got the... The music clean and it stands up really well. Yeah, about seven or eight minutes worth on mm, each, mm. or five, certainly about five minutes worth on each disc. Yeah, if I I'd think, heard that yeah. on the TV series, I wouldn't have questioned it at all. Oh, really? No. Oh no, I didn't for one minute think it sounded like Murray Geld. Actually, to be honest, okay. I thought it sounded like somebody approximating yeah. the sort of breadth 
of Murray Gold mm. without actually attempting to do the chord sequences and the melodies and harmonies of Murray Gold because mm. Murray Gold has this very distinctive way of doing things. Yeah. And I think if you try too hard to sound like that, mm. you know, for instance, borrow his chords, borrow his harmonies, I think the the risk you're taking is that you'll get into the area of sounding like a parody. I think the feels were right, though. I think they got the feels as far as chord, chord changes and, you know, yeah. the melodic side. But also the mix is going to be slightly different anyway because it's obviously the majority of people are going to be listening to this on headphones. Mm. So Actually, there were a few moments where the dialogue disappeared into the music, which I wonder... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that wasn't <laughs> deliberate, that, yeah. but there were times when I thought, are they doing this deliberately? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a... I think that is a result of having actors who are used to doing the TV because it was all, always seemed to be um, Tennant and Tate's lines that did that rather mm. than anybody else's. Mm. And I think the rest of them are used to knowing where the music's going to be and knowing where they have to sort of slightly raise their voices. Yeah. Whereas Tennant and Tate would go off and do a quiet bit and then all of a sudden somebody sticks a load of music over it and mm. they kind of disappear a bit. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm not sure if it kind of needed as much as was there. I don't know. I don't know. But what was there was really good. And actually on the telly there's always quite a lot of music there. Because mm. on the telly you're attempting to with something like Doctor Who, you're attempting to keep it kinetic. Mm. And so, and this is particularly true when Russell T. Davis was doing it, because when Russell T. Davis was doing it, he didn't like um, handheld cameras. Mm. And so there's a lot of fixed camera work. Mm. So in order to keep it kinetic, you're using things like editing and music in order to sort of give it a sense of rhythm. Mm. Mm. And so this seemed to be replicating that slightly. Yeah, it's also tricky with the, as far as the mix is concerned because obviously you don't know what sort of equipment is going to be played on. So, you know, other people may listen to this and think, well, oh, the balance is perfectly all right. Yeah, what are they talking because about? They've got, <laughs> because they've got a load of mid-range coming through the speakers so the voices come through way above the music. So, But the, I listen to it on car stereo, so the speakers are fairly good, <clears> but um, they are pretty much set up for music as opposed to voices anyway. So Now, before we get into the individual stories, one thing that struck me, and this is partly to do with the anticipation and partly to do with knowing where it's come from and knowing what it is now. Mm. This is not Big Finish trying to do television Doctor Who without the pictures. Mm. But by the same token, this is Big Finish saying, and even though the episodes are 55, 57 minutes long, yeah. this is Big Finish saying we don't want to push it too far away from that because obviously yeah. the company are looking at getting a whole new load of listeners for Absolutely. this. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they don't want to do something that's so radically different, you know, that they'll they'll lose people. Mm. Plus, of course, you're talking about um, a company that's sort of done traditional Doctor Who and tried to do it in the style of the times. Mm. So when they do a fourth Doctor story... They try and make it sound and feel like a fourth Doctor story from the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ditto for Sixth Doctor, Eighth Doctor, whoever. Well, mm. not the Eighth Doctor, mm. but do you know what I mean? So I asked Nicholas Spriggs about that and he didn't agree with me, but yeah. Oh, what did he say? Well, he I think he thought that they... And he's right, they have their own style and that's probably developed over time. But there's, there's definitely, <clears throat> certainly in some of those early, the first Tom Bakers, there's a definite... Yeah, 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 there's a taste, there's a flavour, which I think there should be. I think and it's when the right Big thing Finish to do. started, yeah, that was absolutely their 
mm. you know, <clears throat> they're what's called yeah, their um, maxim for doing it, whatever, mm. Mm. was that they were basically replicating what it was back in the day to try and make these stories feel like they could have happened back yeah, then. Yeah, and slot them in. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. Stories, yeah. And they still do that to mm. an extent. Mm. Yeah. Not on, I mean, uh, I talked about Nightshade a few weeks ago, mm. and that's two 60-minute episodes. So, you know, yeah. I mean, that's I'm, moved I'm, on. I'm not talking, yeah, we're not talking about aping. No. Either, but we're just kind well, of getting the... Well, what's little... interesting here mm. is that given the extra sort of 10 or 15 minutes on each episode, rather than, rather than A, do a fairly typical audio thing of having really long scenes of people talking, because, I mean, on audio, on radio, mm. that's kind of your bread and butter, long scenes of people talking. That's how, through the dialogue, you, you know, get the story out there, get the plot out there. Mm. Rather than doing that, and rather than... Because what it would have been so easy for them to do is sort of geography hop. Mm. You know, when you had a Russell T. Davis episode, especially if it was a mid-season episode, and obviously these all are replicating mid-season episodes rather than season openers or finales. Yeah, yeah. When you've got a mid-season episode, you basically... Just like you were in the old days of Doctor Who, you're limited to a certain number of sets and what you can get away with achieving in three mm-hmm. weeks worth of shooting. And here on these, you know, the first one's set in the library and it mostly stays in the library. One of the characters goes to a railway station, but that's it, basically, the library and the railway station. The middle one is set on this planet, but again, it's, you know, you get a few tunnels and a pub and this kind of stuff. Somebody's headquarters. That's about it. Third one takes place in a castle and it basically doesn't move from the castle. Mm. So they're kind of doing it in that respect. Yeah. The same as Russell T Davis would have done. So they've not moved anything on there. But what's happening instead is that rather than, rather than limit the, tone and the tenor of it to the tone and the tenor of those Russell T Davis mid-series episodes they've kind of found a halfway house somewhere between Big Finish and yeah, Russell T Davis yeah it's very I, I, is the words tastefully done I think it it doesn't jar at all in any, no. any shape or form it well there's just... one thing that kind of yeah, risks jarring I'll get to that in a minute mm, but mm. yeah it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like Russell T Davies' Doctor Who, and it doesn't quite feel like Big Finish, but it feels like something in between. Yeah. Like as if they've said, right, you know, we'll keep enough of it that the Tenant and Tate fans will uh, come on board and we'll get what we're doing. But we'll also, because we are who we are, we'll uh, keep enough of what we normally do that, you know, our regular listeners won't feel lost either. No. And of course... They are big finish, so if they don't keep anything of what they do, they're out of their own comfort zone. Mm, mm. So it sits nicely somewhere where it feels comfortable for big finish, but slightly angled towards Russell T Davis rather than classic Doctor Who, which is mm. I, I mean, guess what they're most used to. It's probably a bit early for compliments, but I do think it. it I think tenth uh, <clears throat> Doctor fans, TV fans who've never heard of big finish, <clears throat> could jump into this straight away. If anybody's listening to this, yeah, if anybody's listening to this before they've heard it, though, mm. and are tempted to go out and buy it, mm. 
I would sort of recommend going on the Big Finish site and downloading something else first. Yeah. And listening to that something else first and then listening to this mm. so that, in spite of what I've said about it not being a shock to the system, but actually, if you listen to something else first, you're kind of easing yourself in even more. Yeah, yeah. So go and listen to a classic Doctor Who story or an eighth Doctor story and uh, mm, mm. then you kind of mentally prepared for the big finishness of it. Mm. But the, I mean, you know, most fans should be ready for some kind of like uh, genre jump in as you know, if they've watched any of the animations or anything like that. I mean, yeah, this true. This felt far less jarring than any of the animations. Yeah, I guess so because well, I mean, <clears> yeah, for obvious reasons. Well, with the yeah, that. yeah, but with those animations, they deliberately went for stories that they couldn't tell on the telly. Mm, Whereas mm. here, they're deliberately going for stories that potentially they could have told on the on the telly. Mm. Did any of them actually feel like they could have been on the telly to you? Uh, yes, one of them. Which one? Third one. Interesting. I was going to say pretty much the same thing. The mm. first one, in spite of being the one that probably ought to most have felt like it could have been on the telly, mm. didn't really. No. And the middle one was would have been too expensive. Yeah. yeah. It was like gridlock <laughs> with the budget of The Phantom Menace, really. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And the third one felt like a spiritual... To me, it felt like a spiritual cousin to Silence in the Library, or more particularly to Forest of the Dead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, all three of them slightly felt more like Silence in the Library, than they did say something like Midnight. Mm. Mm. Felt like that place in the relationship between the characters as well. Yeah, so. and in fact, one of the, the is it the second episode references the library at the end? Oh, maybe, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't remember which. It was either the first or the second one references the library. Wait. Oh, yes, the second one, mm. because at the end of that, the Doctor says, oh, yes, I've not read a good book in ages. I should go to a library. And Donna says... I'm not going to spoil the joke, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've just said I'm not going to spoil jokes, yeah, 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 so let's yeah. not do it. But yeah, but it's suffice to say there are some little nuggets in there which are just tight straight in, and um, it felt very felt very warm. I mean, I will say, and I don't know if it's because it was I was fresh to it, and I didn't know what to expect when I first started listening to the first one. Um, it's Donna that comes in first of the two characters, and. For a moment, it felt like, oh, it's like she's reading from a piece of paper. This is a bit oh, odd. Oh, did you think so? Initially, yeah. I went back and listened again. And I thought, oh, actually, no, it's just it's just delivery, and it's just her delivering to a character she's not met before. So that's ah. all it was. So you have to be so careful not to kind of prejudge these things and, and kind yeah, of anticipate. Yeah, because I didn't get that at all. No, no, this is what I mean, yeah. I, as I say, I went back and listened again, and it felt absolutely fine. But I did feel that when you had the Doctor and Donna together... Oh my god! It just suddenly the whole thing lifted. Really did. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about the Doctor and Donna uh, towards the end. Let's talk yeah. about the guest cast now. Yes, because this is the one thing where I think newbies might perhaps get taken slightly aback. Mm. Mm. In that, the tenth Doctor and Donna, both Tennant and Tate, are given performances straight off the telly. Yeah. But everybody else has given performances straight out of Big Finish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I haven't listened to enough of the more recent ones, but I felt it kind of it felt like everyone had upped their game a little bit. 
And that's yeah, not to diminish actually, what Big Finish do at all. It's just it kind of whether that was to do with the 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 uh, the delivery and the velocity that of the episode. Well, it's different in each of the three stories, mm. but I think certainly in the first two and definitely in the middle one, mm. some of the um, actors, not all of them, but some of the actors are good. Big Finish have a house style, mm. I would say, and I hear whenever I review Big Finish. Whatever the range is, I always hear the Big Finish house style, mm-hmm. and it's a different house style from what you get on Radio Four, for example. Yeah, and it's a different house style from what you get with I don't know, the Wireless Theatre Company or Baffle Gab or anybody else. Mm. All of these companies do things their own way, mm. and so each one of them, because it's not natural talking into a microphone rather than I mean, it's not natural talking into a camera or you know dialogue. Mm. while there's a camera present, is not natural. But that's more natural than talking into microphones because at least the two of you, or who, however many people are in the scene, are acting out what you're talking about. <clears throat> Whereas on audio, you're talking about two, three, four, half a dozen people in booths, in studios with microphones, talking to the microphone, pretending it's the person in the next booth they're talking to. <laughs> and that's not easy. Mm. I mean, for the best actor in the world, that is still not easy. And I find, as I listen to these things, that different com- different companies get through that potential trap in different ways. Mm. And Big Finish have a particular way of doing it. And, you know, and it's not a criticism, but I find that one of the things that you often get with Big Finish is that there's a slight archness. Yeah. And the slight archness, I find, comes in at the start of performances. Mm. And then they kind of sort of naturalise over Mm. the course of the episode. Mm. Now, whether that's because the actors are getting more used to it, uh, you know, as they get into a recording session. Yeah. Whether it's just because your ears are becoming attuned to it, the further (laughs) into the episode. It's a mixture of the two, isn't it? Or whether it's just because that's how they do it, whether they just deliberately. And maybe not consciously, deliberately, but subconsciously, deliberately play it up a bit at the start just to get themselves used to what mm, they're doing mm. before they pull back a bit later. Mm. So, yeah, it may be a combination of all those three things. Mm. I find that with them, which I don't necessarily find sometimes with other companies or a different kind of mannered delivery sometimes with other companies. Mm. Mm. And I found Tennant and Tate were not doing that but some of the other actors were. Yeah. And so at the start of each of the first two episodes, not the third one, the third one was different, I think. Mm. But at the start of each of the first two episodes, there was a slight feeling that people were giving different performances from one another. Mm. But I don't know, again, which of those three things it was, but after about 10 minutes, you just weren't noticing it anymore. Mm. Mm. Whether it wasn't there anymore, I think it was still there to an extent. Think- some of the monster voices and that were quite... Pretty arch. Yeah, yeah, monster voices. But a lot of the supporting cast, though, a lot of humans and that that, that are involved seem fairly understated and, and really, really nice to measure. I will give a, a shout-out, whoever did the bug... There's a blood-curdling street, a scream near the start of the first episode from a bloke, and it's one of the best blood-curdling street screams I've ever heard in the series. It's absolutely yeah, there is actually, yeah. Do you remember the one? <laughs> I do, but I can't remember the character who gives it. Yeah, it's a chap who's being uh, attacked, isn't there? And actually, there's a lot of um, part swapping. Mm. There's only about four named 
actors in each of the casts. Oh, okay. Beyond Tennant and Tate. Mm. And the rest of it is parts performed by the cast. Okay, yeah. Now, whether that means they're hopping into one another's plays and doing small mm. cameo roles, because... You know, there's often a lot of parts where it's only one or two lines. I do wonder to what extent playing opposite Tennant and Tate um, sort of altered people's performances as well, because, yeah, initially it was the Tennant and Tate bits that seemed to work really well, but then there were other bits where Catherine Tate was working with, you know, uh, other male actors and and things like that, and it it was just just like normal free-flowing conversation. It was lovely, really nice. Yeah. It just flowed. And you, yeah, and actually, that's something you don't often always get either with audio. No. And although Big Finish have become really, really good at that, mm. but even so, still, like I say, it's not natural to be standing in booths talking to microphones. No, no. And not everybody can always get that. That's why these companies use a sort of, you know, in Big Finish's case, it's quite an extensive one, but a, basically a kind of repertory cast mm. in order to make sure they're using people who are comfortable with it. Mm. Mm. One of the things as well is, like I say, that most of the stories have only got small casts of four or five other people on top of Tenet and Tate. I wonder if that is, A, because they didn't want too much of what was going on getting out. So if you limit the number of people in the studio, you limit the potential for leaks. I don't suppose any of the people who were involved in these things would have wanted to leave no. but you know what I mean you still and then the other thing is practicality yeah but not so much practicality because obviously these things are going to sell more so I'm just thinking about the time time the, it takes to record well the time those actors were available could it be makes sense to keep yeah but I'm also thinking that one of the reasons why you might do that <clears throat> because particularly on audio on television you can stick 15 actors in something and because you can see the actors as well as hear them your mind automatically knows which one each of those is Mm. on audio so much more difficult to do that because if you throw 15 voices in the first 10 minutes of an audio play Mm. you know by the time you're quarter of an hour in your audience is lost don't know what's going on Mm. so it's often the case that on audio you'd very carefully and deliberately slowly introduce characters one by one to make sure people are getting used to who they are Mm. before the next one comes up. Mm. And even better is if you've only got four or five of them for people to get used to, particularly if you're deliberately aiming it at people who aren't necessarily used to audio. Because a lot of people are going to be listening to this will be basically listening to audio for the first time, Mm. I should imagine. Mm. A lot of people. Mm. With luck. Yeah, <laughs> it all goes yeah, to plan. It's, it's positive on every level, isn't it, really? So, yeah, I'm wondering if they've deliberately limited the cast and in order to limit the potential for complication. Mm, mm. So, there's that. Should we talk about the three individual stories a bit? Go on, then. Shall I turn this piece of paper over Go on, so then. you can see what's involved? Okay. Ah, right, okay. The Ooh. first one... The first ah. one... <laughs> That's me reading the three names. Well, the first one's a bit of a mate of ours. Yes. Yeah. Well, I never. <clears throat> well, you're Season say opener. You're going to say it for the listeners, then. Uh, it's Technophobia by Matt Fitson. What did you think of the first one? I thought it was a great opener. I've got to say... I think it's the most, it's the most big finish of the three, in as much as it felt like 
Tenth Doctor being plopped into a big finished story. Yes. Yeah, actually, you're right. It did, and maybe some not necessarily specific big finished stories, but mm. yeah, I can see exactly what you mean when you say that. Mm. I think, but, but also extremely RTD. Without going into spoilers or anything like that, it, the idea of taking something that we're all very familiar and making it. Yeah, yeah. Threatening. Although I thought the second one, even more so, but in a completely different way. Mm, but we'll mm. get to that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And it also, and it reminded me specifically of a number of particular things. Mm-hmm. But not in a, not in a, <clears throat> apologies for that. It's all right. It was running on battery and now it's running on oh my God. plug. Yeah, if we were slowing down, um, speeding up. It yeah. reminded me of things... Well, there are certain things... Do you remember the TV series called, TV series called The Changers? No, you wouldn't, because no. that would be before you were old mm. enough to... The, part of the premise was from something like The Changers. And then there are other elements of it that came... Well, not necessarily that came from other places, but it was a story with lots of very familiar elements. Mm. And let's face it, the central premise of it is nothing new by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. It's not a million miles away, actually, from what Robert Holmes was doing with Spearhead from Space. Yeah. yeah. You know, in a certain way. And Terror of the Autons, even more so. Mm. So it's not like there's anything new there. But actually, what he does... And this is something that Doctor Who does, is that Doctor Who can take something that somebody else has done mm. and make it feel fresh. Yeah. Like Pyramids of Mars takes the sort of hammer mummy films and makes them feel like something new and different. Mm. Mm. You know, it doesn't... But obviously, people are reminded of them, mm. but it doesn't feel like them. No, no. And Big Finish do the same thing as well, I think. I think there's something about... And yeah... By being the most big finish of the three stories, I think it accomplishes this, the best of the three stories, in as far as it goes. I think the other two stories are slightly less um, <clears throat> going over familiar ground than this, mm. for different reasons. But they both are going over familiar ground. Makes perfect sense for it to be the first story. Mm. But, but it does do it with a... What with what we always look for, which is another level. So without going into the details of the story, but there, there's there's, yeah, there's more going on than just a, yeah. There's more more going on than the the apparent single layer. So as far as the threat is concerned, it's it's not as straight. It's not as straightforward as what it looks like. No, well, in fact, it's not remotely as straightforward as what it initially looks like. Yeah, mm. and that's part of. And actually, I thought that was the one area in which this episode was. Not necessarily weak, but it, I felt it stretched that out a bit too far. Yeah, maybe. Because there's this thing. Mm. And like you say, you're being pointed in one direction so that they can sort of pull the rug. Mm. But it's kind of, yeah, you work it out long before the characters do. And it's kind of... But, I mean, this is because it's 55 minutes. Mm. And it and that and that instance is where it felt like forty five stretched to fifty five, but mm. only because of that one particular aspect. Yeah, and it felt like you had maybe too too many examples of the thing before you actually got the reveal, mm. as it were. Yeah, mm. but then that's the complaint I made about that scene in the kitchen in the eleventh hour, and other people love that, so that's just a 
a personal issue. Hmm. But the rest of it was great, and the characterization is great. It is, yeah, yeah, and the supporting cast mm. are great. Uh, uh, yeah, <clears throat> it just it it just does what it what it should do. Really, it's and a bit of a shame <clears throat> that Rachel Sterling mm. it doesn't get more to do because at the start of it, I, you know, I'm not gonna. This is potentially a spoiler for the first 15 minutes of the mm. play, but I think we can go that far. <laughs> but from the start of it, it looks like she's going to be one of the main characters. Yeah. But actually, she's sidelined in favour of the less obvious characters. Mm. And that's a that's a, a really nice way of doing it, because it does not unsettle you as a listener, mm. but it provokes surprises in your experience as a listener. Mm. And also... You know, the the other reason why that's a nice thing to do is because it feels like a Russell T. Davis thing where rather than the Doctor and Donna, in, say, the Doctor's daughter, for example, they don't spend, spend the whole episode talking to the general. They mm. go off and uh, they're more interested in the other characters. I was going to say, what is so lovely about this, and it's the thing I was hoping it was going to do, is it fills those gaps. It doesn't. It never felt like one season was enough. <clears throat> And it never felt like they could just have an adventure and just get on and 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 just enjoy a bit of time together and mm. for Donna to have some time, and it does feel like that with these. There's there's very I think there's a there's a very subtle section. Oh, actually no, it isn't very subtle. There is there is a point in one of the stories. I can't even remember which one it is. Where say what it is. Or... Oh no no I can't I don't want oh, to okay. I don't want to. But there's a very where it re- refers to what happens to Donna. Oh yeah yeah yeah. It's quite a big, and I don't know whether it's a joke or whether it is supposed to actually tie in or not. I don't know whether it's like an in joke or not. But it's I, nice that there is only one. I th- and there there are quite a few moments actually mm. where they're referencing things from elsewhere, not just that have happened, but that will happen. Yeah, and not just actually Doctor and Tenth Doctor and Donna, but they're also there. are also on a side note. There are also moments where, rather than foreshadowing or talking about things that have happened, they're just referencing things from modern Doctor Who. Mm. There are references to Stephen Moffat's. There are fairly sort of very in your face, obvious references to Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who from since Russell T Davies left. <laughs> just as there are fairly obvious in your face references to things from Ninth Doctor stories. Mm, mm. So it's not like it limits. What it looks to me like is that the writers are saying, right we've got this one particular year of modern Doctor Who to do, and the chances are we won't get any of the other years of modern Doctor Who to do. And if we do, we won't be getting Eccleston. No. And, you know, these particular writers might never get a chance to write another one. Mm. So it looks to me like these three writers have gone to town a bit on including things that they wanted to include, Mm -hmm. which includes lots of lines of dialogue for the Doctor and Donna, of course. Mm -hmm. And there are some lovely bits. Uh, The jokes are, you know, I... If if people have been mentioning the jokes, the reason they have is because they are very very good. They are good. There's some just cracking, uh, just the delivery of them and everything is just great. So it's everything I could have wanted in that respect. Now before we talk more, well, but, that, but it is comedy heavy. It is comedy heavy. I don't think it's too comedy heavy though. I don't think it's too well. No, because I can't get enough of it. I can't get enough of it, but if if anyone is going to aim any kind of criticism to it, they might say that oh, it's a, it's all a bit too funny, funny, which they probably had a problem with okay, in the first place. Okay, fair enough. 
Yeah, no, that's not a criticism. criticism. That's something I'm kind of. No, I know. I can see that that's something that you like. Yeah. yeah. So that's something that's, that's in, in the big <laughs> tick in the positive column for you. Yeah. I didn't get that impression, to be honest. Oh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I, if anything, I got the. Uh, I, I saw it the other way around. Oh, okay. I thought maybe there wasn't enough comedy. Mm, okay. <clears throat> Which is not to say that there isn't comedy threaded throughout mm. all of all the three episodes. But yeah, there were I didn't think they overplayed it at all. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, I It's probably I, something I was sensitive to and I thought, oh, oh maybe I'm gonna like this but I thought they might have gone for it more, to be mm. honest. Mm. In fact, I suppose there's a risk that they could have gone for it so much that it might have felt like they were sending it up. And they don't at all. And it's strangely if if you were going to pin me down and say which one was my favourite, well, no, I'm not going to say it now. Let's do that after we've done yeah, all three. What I will yeah. say is my favourite is probably the most, the only one where the story is driven to a certain extent by the comedy. Yeah, I think you know you, <clears throat> until they've they've kind of steered the story to get certain situations. I think we'll come to the same conclusion probably. Yeah, mm. yeah but there were times when I was listening to it when I was thinking. I wonder if Tenant and Tate fans might be slightly disappointed that there's not more comedy. Mm, okay. So actually, that sounds to me like they've judged it quite finely again. Oh yeah, but yeah, it's, it's balanced really well with the with the darker and the more emotional moments because you, you do get those two sides of Donna's character particularly. Did you get the impression because this is potentially going into this, going into doing this? I don't know what their criteria were for who wrote the three stories. Mm. You know, whether they opened it up to anybody who's written for, or anybody who's on the current roster of Big Finish and say, pitch a story and we'll pick the best three or whatever. Mm. Or whether they cherry picked these three writers and said, right, you three have got the gig. I should imagine more the former than the latter. I don't know, actually. No, I don't know how they work, so who knows. As somebody who's sitting down to write a Tenth Doctor and Donna story, knowing that there have only ever been 11 Tenth Doctor and Donna stories, mm. if you don't count the end of time, where she's basically just a tiny little cameo. Knowing that there have only been 11, knowing that you've not got Russell T. Davis giving you elements to include and or even a basic plot, and knowing that he won't be rewriting you afterwards, or if not rewriting you, at the very least, you know, <clears throat> uh, giving you the thumbs up for what you've done or whatever. Knowing all this, you have to wonder how worried these three writers were going in about getting it right mm. and how much they could relax into doing it. Mm. Mm. Because writing for a particular doctor, there are two ways it can go. You can either worry too much that you're getting it right or you can just relax into it and say, right, I will write it, you know, with enough of a vague approximation that the actors themselves will do the rest of the work. And, of course, they would. Mm, mm. But, actually, the dialogue in all three of these stories absolutely nails them. Mm, mm. Definitely, definitely. And on the comedy side of things, it's just... You know, I like to think that the actors enjoyed it as well. That sounds like a funny thing to say, but it does sound like they did. Oh, I should say so. Should in, fa we... in fact, a lot of the dialogue is better than it was in the series, if I'm honest. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Time Reaver then, the second one by Jenny T. Colgan. Mm. 
<clears throat> which that's the one that's kind of in the same arena as something like Gridlock. Yeah, yeah. And weirdly, it's the most sci-fi. It is, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, because of the twist in the story that we won't reveal at the end, mm. and because that's something that's threaded throughout the episode, so it's not like it comes completely out of the blue. Mm. Well, it doesn't come remotely out of the blue. Mm. When you get the twist, it comes, com- you know, it's completely sort of consistent with everything that's going on in the episode. Mm. Mm. So it's the most sci-fi, but also it's the most human Yeah. of the three, mm. even more so than the third one. Mm. And we'll talk about what the third one's like in a second. But yeah. It's also very 2000 AD, actually. Yeah, it is. And ostentatiously so. It knows it. Knows it mm. And it's sort of doing it deliberately. Yeah. When I saw who the writers were, and when I was listening to them, like I you, couldn't have, I couldn't have told you who those writers were. Oh, well, when I was listening, I thought to it was them, Alan Barnes in there. Oh, did you? Yeah. When I was listening to, I think Alan Barnes. I don't know. It doesn't say on the um, credits. I think Alan Barnes is the script editor. Okay. Inverted commas. Mm-hmm. I think he's the guy who actually sort of decides on the plots. Mm. I could be wrong about that, but I, I suspect it's probably him because that's one of the things he does at Big Finish. Um, I lost my train of thought there. Mm, sorry. Oh, what was I talking about? <laughs> we oh, saying about being the most human of the three. Time. Yeah. No, I was going to say something else then as well. But oh, you were talking about the 2000 AD thing. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way as Gridlock was. Mm. Um. Yeah. No, I was going to say when I was listening to it myself. I knew who the three writers were, mm. but actually, when I'd got my loaded them up into the iPod and got them out of the house, it jumbled up the order. Mm. So I didn't know which one was written by which author. Okay. So I knew who the writers were, but I didn't know which was which. Yeah. And I would have sworn that this would have been the Matt Fitton rather than the Jenny Colgan. Okay. Because um, I, 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 I knew James Goss was the. Um, the third one. Mm, mm. So the other two, I I was confused about which was which, and I would have assumed this was the Matt Fitton and the other one was a Jenny Colgan. Mm. If from the first fifteen minutes, yeah, yeah, given what the sort of the stories are about, but then the way this one Time Reaver goes, then it kind of goes more into her territory, mm. but only because you're sort of preconditioned to think of what her territory is given what she was writing before she started writing Doctor Who stuff. Mm. So you kind of imagine that her stories would be yeah, you know, more like Technophobia was rather than what Time Reaver is. Mm. Time Reaver's a very sort of well the way it kicks off, it feels like a very boys' own sci fi thing really, yeah, doesn't it? Absolutely. But by yeah, two thirds of the way through it's changed completely. It's it's, it's about relationships and it's um and it's a very cool sci-fi idea as well which would have translated well into a comic strip so yeah actually that would have the actual way that they illustrate what the time reavers do Mm. that's the weakest element of the episode for me because every time you go into one of those sequences where you're hearing what the time reavers doing to somebody yeah it felt very affected it felt like something that would have been really good on television but because they didn't have the benefit of pictures, they kind of had to substitute something else. Mm. And so it didn't quite work for me. Mm. Mm. Although it doesn't... It's that thing of having to almost... 
there, there's a moment in the third one where uh, the 10th Doctor's literally explaining what's happening. He's doing that thing of... Yeah, he does. ...audibly explaining... Outside this is the window. Yes. Yeah. This is happening. This is happening. Um, so it's it's the same as that, isn't it? It's just having... Yeah, exactly. ...the character having to, you know, give a, a And commentary. you have to allow for that yeah. on audio. Mm. I mean... I, mean, I didn't think it was too bad in that respect. I, th- I quite like it. As it when you hear the effect, it's quite sort of dreamlike and, and odd and disorientating. So... Yeah, yeah. I think it's just the thing of the character having to tell you what's happening, mm, mm. which, <clears throat> well, there's no way around it in that situation because no. on those instances that character is entirely by themselves, so it's not like they can talk to anybody but the person listening. Mm, mm. And yeah, you kind of have to take it as being this is their thoughts rather than their actual voice, mm. which, well, I'm not saying it took me out. But mm. those were the moments at which it has the most potential, I think. Mm. But the rest of it was fantastic. Yeah. And you couldn't have... And the story wouldn't have been the same if you'd have taken those out because you needed them there. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So there was no two ways around that, really. No. Um, <clears throat> oh, and that's got Terry Malloy and John Banks in it. Mm. And Dan Starkey. Dan Starkey, yeah. I didn't recognise him, you know. No. No. It's like, oh, that was Dan Starkey, was it? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody in it is very good. There's one of the aliens in it. Um, does sound really, really does sound like Silver. Oh yeah, and actually the character's rather like Sil as well. Yes, yeah. With uh, eight legs. Mm. I wonder if that was deliberate. Maybe. I now did wonder, and actually, for the first two minutes before we find out who the character is, I was thinking, is this Sil? Yeah, yeah. It was a couple of times where literally the tone of his voice was exactly the same. Like no Bill Shabon, yeah. yeah. Mm. But then I suppose, I don't know whether she did that deliberately. I don't even know if she's aware of Syl, to be honest. I'm assuming she probably is. Mm. But yeah, yeah. But then the kind of character it had to be in that place in the story, there was no... It was like um, in Phantom Menace, the character who um, the little lad belongs to. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. What's it called? Watto, is it? Watto, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrew Seacombe. Yeah, it's like there are only so Harry many Seacombe's ways. Harry son, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Oh, God. Well, there are only so many ways you can do that. <laughs> but speaking of which, I've seen The Force Awakens now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we'll have five minutes on that later. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> um, the third one, Death and the Queen by James Goss. That is... Um, well, it bears mentioning at this point... Mm. First one set in the modern day, second one set in the future, yeah, or outer space. You assume it's got to be the future. Mm. Third one set in the past. So they've done that forwards, backwards, and you know modern day thing that Russell T Davis was doing, mm. which is kind of obvious, but it bears saying that that is what they've done. Mm. <clears throat> Alice, think... Cr- Alice Krieg is the Queen Mum. Yeah, she's yeah. fantastic. She is fantastic, and her mm. and Catherine Tate just. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bounce off each other something wrong, don't they? So, Well, let's say it now. This is best of the three. Yes, it is. Yeah, without question. Not that the other two are remotely disappointing. No, no. But, yeah, this is this is the one that's the most... Uh, f- well, the one, it's the one that's the most fun. Mm. And especially the way it opens. Actually, the way it opens is brilliant. It reminded me a bit of the dream sequence in Forest of the Dead, at the start of Forest of the Dead, the Mm. way it keeps jumping forward. But the way he's done it is fantastic. And the sound design, actually, they don't go over the top on it, 
But what they do is they just keep it subtle and simple enough mm. that you can follow what's going on. Yeah. And the first 10 minutes is fantastic. And the, and the nice thing for me is that it takes Donna on a, on a, on a journey. Which which I like love, the the and I'm glad. Uh, the t- I mentioned the temptation is there for the writers to do that in all the stories. You know, she's such a meaty character that you you just want to do that sort of thing with her. And they ha- and uh, Matt and Jenny Colgan haven't done that. They've um, they've just let them be the characters they are. Yeah, yeah. And this is the what, but this is the one where she's literally taken somewhere and. As we know, discovers well, things about herself. But. Not to be around the bush, because this is the premise of the story, and people could probably read it on the website. I can't remember exactly what it says, but she runs off to get married. Yes, basically. Mm. <clears throat> and <laughs> well, and as I put in my review, is just about as ill-advised a decision as the last time she yeah. went off to get married. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> but you know, people will find out in due course when they come to listen to it. It's it's tremendous fun. But at the same time, it's um, well, it's quite adventurous in a sort yeah. of not philosophical, but do you know what I mean? It's uh, it's quite adventurous in a thoughtful storytelling way. Mm. Not, I'm not just talking about the format of the first twenty minutes, but I'm talking about the very idea of it. Mm. It's one of those things. It works really well in audio. I don't know quite how well it might have worked on telly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have looked. Obviously, there are scenes. You know, we are giving away too much. You know, there's scenes where the doctor's riding a horse. Yeah, but you accept it. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard that happening in other big finishes, and I think, well, that's not. You know, that's that's one of those you have to suspend your disbelief. But they get it. They get it right, and I don't know whether that's down to performance from David Tennant or what. Well, of course, there's a horse in uh, Girl in the Fireplace. Yeah, Yeah. So it's like they've said, right. This is something the tenth doctor does. Yeah, maybe as simple as the fact that I can imagine it because I've seen it on television. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I don't even mean like that. I mean, it's, um, there's something about the very idea of the story mm. that feels like... It's um, not metatextual, mm. but it feels like it's punching in that direction. Yeah, There's mm. something about the storytelling that's almost like all the characters know they're involved in a story almost. Mm. And there are lots of things. There are, there's a lovely mystery right at the start that gets solved in maybe 25 minutes in, halfway in, something like that, mm. and then gets resolved at the end of the story. And the the idea, this mystery, is consistent with the story that's being told. And it, it just works, all of it, really well. It just mm. fits together like a really nice jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I was going to say, there's a, <clears throat> there is a point in, the, um, in Time Reaver where uh, towards the end, Donna delivers some lines which don't quite sound like they would have come out of her mouth. Oh, really? Mm. You think so? Yeah, I'm, I'm nitpicking now. I don't know. But I'm yeah, just going to yeah. say, but that sort of thing is is said and is big a big part of what happens in Death and the Queen, and that just works because she's behaving. Well, she's deliberately putting it on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. So, um. Mm. Yeah, no, that's... no, it's it's hugely successful. I mean, all three are really. I think all three are really classy. If I'm honest, well, they've done a really nice job, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, all three stories actually take different aspects, not just the forwards, backwards, and modern thing, but they all sort of take different aspects of the Tenth Doctor and Donna, mm. and um, play up to them. I mean, the first one is kind of the first one reminds me a bit of the Runaway Bride. 
not in um, the tone of it, mm. but in the sort of uh, the aspect of the personalities that are being used in the story. Mm-hmm. In that it's kind of it's kind of got that feel of the first one feels like it's Donna on home ground. Yeah, yeah, it's bit. more partners in crime, isn't it? It's um, yeah, yeah. Mm, mm. And then the second one is like, well, like I say, it's their gridlock. Mm. Essentially, mm. it's their let's throw them far into a mad, mad future and let them and let them uh, pull the story elements towards them yeah. rather than having to assimilate into the story. Yeah, it's it's like um, they're like a. Um, dwarf star at the centre of the storytelling. Mm. It's like at the start of the story there's this universe and by the end of the story the universe has kind of consolidated itself to Doctor and Donna rather than the Doctor and Donna having to sort of pull themselves inside out to fit in the stories Mm. almost. And Death and the Queen the third one is just absolutely essential Doctor and Donna. Mm. And like I say very much in a Stephen Moffat way without actually pulling any Stephen Moffat tricks. Mm. But actually, actually, um, it pulls on the Doctor's character as well, and how Donna puts him in his place. Is there's a yeah, oh yeah, there's some <laughs> lovely little yeah, that especially yes. There, yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, okay, here's one issue that yeah. I was going to yeah bring up before we get to t- to talk a bit more in depth about. Tenant and Tate. The thing, I, the problem, I, the issue I always had with Rusty Davis was, you know, his character stuff was exceptionally strong, but his sci-fi stuff not so much. Mm. Now, what did you think of the sci-fi stuff in these three? It was pretty good. Yeah, I still had issues with it. <clears throat> yeah, in that, if you're talking any any kind of vagueness, possibly Matt's story is the the one where you've got to sort of take it on the chin. A little well, bit and accept all how it's three working, of but... the stories they revolve around an alien who comes in and does this thing because they're an alien. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wait, rather than doing a rather than doing a thing because it felt like a natural thing mm. for somebody to do, they were kind of doing a thing because they were an alien, which felt to me not like quite not so much in the second story though. Not so much in Time Reaver. That's um, that's. that's based around one particular piece of technology isn't it yeah it is no i'm thinking more of the um the eight-legged sill okay. character mm. in time weaver time weavers so that's slightly different but mm. the, in the first one and the third one it, both of those sort of sort of finish in the same way as one another mm. in that there's this <clears throat> mystery about what the menace is and who it's coming from. Mm. And by the time you solve what the mystery is and who it's coming from, it's kind of right, like... Uh, and this is not really a spoiler, because this doesn't spoil anything about how the story unfolds, but it's kind of like, oh, so there's this alien doing this thing. Mm. And that kind of felt slightly... Not like a deus ex machina, necessarily, but it almost felt a little bit like, okay, so you take the alien out, and what's the story? Mm. Um, but that's not a criticism mm. because, again, that kind of in a slightly sideways way also feels very RTD. Mm. So mm. it felt consistent with the universe that the Tenth Doctor and Doctor. Well, that's had one come thing from. I will say about Matt's story is that he did the RTD thing of taking 
something, you know, a piece of modern technology and, and you know, and making it sinister. And I think that it had a far more, um, I don't know what the word is really, philosophical slant to it. Yeah, yeah. Than RTD would have ever had. Although he did it in a way that was very at home, or would have been very at home in Flatline with Peter Capaldi. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of... All three of the stories felt to me like Russell T. Davis stories with a slightly Stephen Moffat tone mm. in a big Finnish environment. Mm. So it's kind of the review I wrote. Like it had grown up a little bit. Well, the review yeah. I wrote said that they're kind of taking the best of all worlds. Mm. And that's what it feels like they're doing. That's what they should do, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what they're doing, rather than just sort of stealing this, that, and the other from here, there, and everywhere, what they're actually doing is saying, right, these are the possibilities. Let's use the ones that work. Hmm. So it's almost like, you know, what they say about <clears throat> you learn from your mistakes. Hmm. Well, Big Finish are lucky enough to have learned from other people's mistakes. So these three stories kind of hit the ground running. Mm. They're not really, I mean, apart from the few nitpicks we've brought up, they're not really making any mistakes. Because mm. uh, any errors of judgment they might have made, they don't have to because somebody else has already made that error of judgment. So they can mm. just, you know, pick up the baton and run with it. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what else, from when I was talking to uh, Nick Briggs about it, I, I sort of, again, I put forward the idea that Big Finish was creating this bridge between the classic series and the new series. Mm. And uh, and again, I don't think he felt it was as defined as that. But actually, you listen to this, and and they meld. Well, he's too close to see it. Say again. I said he's too close to see it. <laughs> but it does. It does. You, it, they these feel like big finish, but with the tenth doctor in it. it. It just. It almost feels actually like if you take a sixth Doctor Big Finish adventure, mm. it feels like it comes from just after the classic series. Mm. And if you take a one of these tenth Doctor stories now, it feels like it comes from just before the new series. And then if you take the Paul McGann audios, they feel like they come from somewhere in between. Yeah. So yeah. it's almost like you're leaping from the classic series ones into the Paul McGann ones into these tenth Doctor ones, and presumably the War Doctor ones and that as well. Mm. And it and it feels like a it does it feels like a very sort of fluid. Well, it feels like the glue that's filling the gap. Mm. Mm. But having said that, here's a question for you. Do you feel... Because, I mean, there's this big question of whether Big Finish is canon or whatever. Yeah, okay. You're getting to this quicker than I thought you would. Yeah, go on. Well, no, we've, I said we were going to do this for an hour and it's been an hour. Oh, blimey. Okay. Um, okay, no, I'm not going to talk about canon mm. necessarily, but there's a, this... When I when you think of the sixth doctor, I keep saying the sixth doctor. Okay, let's say fifth doctor instead. Then, as mm. an example, audio plays. Do you feel like these tenth doctor ones have got slightly more legitimate legitimacy, say, than the fifth, sixth, or seventh doctor ones? I have to say yes, and I couldn't tell you why. They just feel so convincing. Yeah, I don't think it's even anything to do with that. I think before you even listen to them, they slightly feel more legitimate. Mm. I think I do know why. Cool. Because for the fifth Doctor, there was a 20-year gap between the series and yeah, the audios. Okay. In fact, not 20 years, 30. Mm. Whereas these, there's been like a five or six-year gap. Mm. These, feels like, these feel like almost they've come out of the TV series. They do. So yeah, whereas, I was going to say the biggest compliment I can give them is they, they could just But even before you series. hear them, they feel like they've come, it feels like they've come out of the TV series because you're taking the actors 
it feels like straight from the telly and into the audios. Mm. Whereas with those older doctors, you're talking about decades of difference. So those older ones feel like they're remaking the old series, whereas these feel like they're continuing the new series. Mm. Mm. And that's why, to me, it feels more legitimate. Mm. So although I don't think it's an issue of canon, because if they involve the actors, then they're canon. No. If they're on the telly, they're canon. But I mean, it depends where you draw your line. Mm. But if you draw your line in that, if they involve the actors, they're canon, then either all big finishes or none of it. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in that sense, it's not a question of canon. It's a question of whether it feels legitimate, isn't it? <laughs> it's just a question of whether you enjoy it or not. Well, then. And, and it's just a, they're just a ride, aren't they? So what did you think of Tennant and Tate? Just, I... I don't think there's another doctor, if I'm honest, who translates to the audio so seamlessly. Well, it's because his voice is so elastic. Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And so everything he does here in these three plays is mm. exactly what he was doing all over the telly. Mm. Mm. I've got to say, for somebody who found that really annoying on telly, yeah, without... On audio, because you're not having to watch his face at the same time. Mm. On audio, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it really works. <laughs> it is. There's also an element of it that's like, okay, I may not have enjoyed him all the time when yeah. he was the Doctor on the telly. I certainly enjoyed him a lot of the time when he was the Doctor on the telly. <clears throat> but the, the the little things that were niggles and annoyances when he was on the telly, when you hear it on audio, you just kind of, yeah, okay, that's what he did on the telly. And it sort of just feels familiar. and He does, yeah. And yeah. you don't have remotely the same reaction to it. Mm, mm. The delivery between the two of them as well. I mean, it's like it's like listening to ping pong. There's a very good joke about ping pong in there. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, she, I think he's the better of the two in translating, but she's not far behind. Mm. Because Catherine Tate's show was a, you know, absolute the kind of thing that would teach her how to use your voice so when she goes into an audio studio and has to do the thing where she's standing in front of the microphone mm. she's had all the training she needs from mm. her sketch show so actually he feels like a really natural fit for audio and <clears throat> I don't think she's quite up to where he is but I don't think she's far off No, I think the only I think the only um way in which she perhaps doesn't match him is and this was true on the telly as well although you couldn't see it on the telly but what she always said about she didn't understand what the hell was going on in the script yeah yeah i think you could hear that in a couple of places here <laughs> <clears throat> i think there are a couple of moments because it's audio and so the vocal inflection mm. is so much more in your consciousness i think there are a couple of moments when you actually notice it more. Mm. but you know only a couple across all three hours mm. Oh, it's it's just it. Yeah, it, it maintains everything I think about them being the perfect pairing, as far as you know, of the of the whole tenth Doctor era, possibly of right the way across Doctor Donna. And certainly, you can't imagine, and no disrespect to the actors, but you can't imagine Billy Piper, and particularly Freeman Adjuman, translating into audio as well. No. You know, I can slightly see Billy Piper doing it. You know, I can imagine them doing it with those actors if those actors had the time and the wherewithal to do it. Mm. But this is, if you were to 
<clears throat> Even if you're not a huge Donna fan, this is the pairing. It's double barrels, isn't it? It's double barrels of firepower, really, isn't it? Mm. There's no, there's no chasing after the Doctor. You know, no. no, there's no riding on his coattails here. It's, it's she's no. They just get in and get on with it. Yeah, absolutely. And the two actors are patently having an absolute ball doing it as well. Mm. That you can tell how much they're enjoying it. Just I think that the... feeds through to the other actors as well. I mean, it... <coughs> certainly in the third one, mm. particularly mm. where, um, yeah, and you mentioned Alice Creek before. Yeah, her character in particular is. Um, Having a hell, hell of a time. Yeah. And actually, Blake Ritson, who plays Rudolph. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's having a whale of a time as well. Mm. It's <coughs> almost like everybody in the third one had a couple of glasses of wine before they started. <laughs> <laughs> Not that they're slurring, but that they're having so much fun with it. Yeah. Mm. And yet still, it's a great story. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's anything else so to is this, is this, is in essence, those three stories are the, the first box set. Is that right? Um, the three individual releases. Three individual releases, right. Three individual releases, and they are collected together into a box set. Okay. A limited edition box set. hmm So you can, uh, you know, presumably when people hear this podcast, that'll still be available. So mm. you can buy the box set with all three and mm. save a bit of money and get a bunch of extras. I, yeah, I, I would recommend them in as much as I will have my own copy. Because I, it does feel like it's part of that era, in yeah, quite, yeah, in quite a big way. Well, in the same way as I, <clears throat> regardless of whether I get, you know, review downloads of the Survivors mm. audios, I always buy them just because that Survivors thing is like one thing I. Mm. It's a collection sort of thing. I haven't quite made that leap of imagination as far as the books are concerned. Essentially, because I never get time to read them. But, uh... Well, the books don't involve the actors. No. And that's a different thing entirely. Mm. But yeah, if it involves the actors, it's kind of... Well, again, like I say, it's not canon, it's legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> that's a better way of defining it, I think. Mm, mm. But yeah, it feels like it's actually an extension of that universe rather than being something that's copying that universe or, mm. you know, mm. attempting to copy that universe. It actually feels... At home, mm. so yeah. So, and I hope it takes big finish to the next level with you know getting more people in and listening. I mean, that's the thing. I, I would, if I knew someone was a big talent fan, big TV fan, they never touched the audios. I'd say, well, you need Start to hear that. Here, yeah. You need to hear those. If you haven't had enough Tenant and Tate, it's there. Yeah, in spite of a few niggles, mm. I got to say, if you liked. Series four, mm. if you like the relationship between Tennant and Tate, and actually, even if you like the relationship between Tennant and Tate, but didn't particularly like the storytelling in series four, because I know people have an issue with the storytelling, mm. but not with the characters, mm. it's a must buy. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Because, yeah, say for instance, the doctor's <clears throat> daughter, you know, the stuff, the Dr. Donna stuff. You're not going to have the same issues with any of these three stories. No, you're not. In fact, the the stories in Series 4, where Russell T. Davis pushed out the um, high concept, the Doctor's Daughter being a great example, Mm. and of course Stolen Earth and Journey's End, Mm. particularly Journey's End being the other one, they're pushing out the high concepts here at a completely different angle. Mm. So any issues you had with it on telly, Mm. they're all wiped away. Like I say... 
the people who've written these three stories here have learned from any mistakes that were made on the telly. And they've learned from Stephen Moffat's mistakes in the meantime. And they've learned from the mistakes of 20 years of doing classic series on audio. So that by the time you get to these three stories, mm. they're kind of at the pinnacle of knowing how they work best. Yeah. And they've made the best of these three stories. Mm. <clears throat> and if you just try one, Death and the Queen, then you'll regret not buying the box set of all three. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right, we will talk Star Wars maybe another time. Yeah. Suffice it to say, I enjoyed it. Yeah. <clears throat> but until next week then, when we, we, we will be back talking... Presumably, given where I think this one's slotting in about the Weeping Angel two-parter from Series 5. Until then, I was Simon. And I was JR. And we will speak again soon. soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Tenth Doctor Adventures. What is this place? Calibris, brilliant place. An entirely mechanical planet. Catch, hitch, fuel, fix, buy pretty much any kind of transportation in existence. This empire's a massive leap in user-friendly tech. Meadow Digital's ahead of the game on the chipsets. Quadruple core nano circuits and a sleek, sexy designer package. Ultra thin. Look. You're talking, but it's all geek to me. Can we go? Yeah, I suppose. Hey, Robots running amok. Donna, we're on. Remain where you are. Bex, grab my hand. Go, Donna. One of us needs to. And I just... Commander, come on! Don't want to dislocate a shoulder for nothing! Do not run. We require test subjects. Ah, there it is! Vagabond's Reach, Tavern of Taverns, most feared social environment in the galaxy. You've never been up Sugar Heart on a Tuesday. You don't know everything about me. Ready? Is this the front door? They don't even have bouncers. Yeah, basically, think of them all as bouncers. Oh, ah, thanks. Oh, we're the one, stranger.
I'm, I'm hanging on to your banner, and there's a skeleton around my neck. Oh, oh that has definitely never happened before. Big finish. We love stories. What are you saying? They fizzled in somehow, like the TARDIS? Yeah, transmat from another dimension. The, the, the TARDIS doesn't fizzle. It's more of a 